To quote from Wikipedia, Dr. Fallon is an American neuroscientist. He's professor of psychiatry and human behavior and emeritus professor of anatomy and neurobiology in the School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Fallon is a Sloan Scholar, a senior Fulbright Fellow, a National Institutes of Health career awardee, and the recipient of a range of honorary degrees and awards. My medical school class voted him our favorite professor. As such, I invited him to our convocation this past weekend. He was unable to attend because he was in London. But I firmly believe that sometime in the next few weeks to months, he will appear on this program to talk about his highly interesting research. We don't have him live for today's program, but I think what we'll do is just reach over and borrow a cup of tea from our friends at NPR and play for you a little five-minute segment that Dr. Fallon did for them a few years ago. Jim Fallon spends a lot of time inside the heads of psychopaths. He studies the biological basis for behavior, and one of his specialties is to try to figure out how, say, a killer's brain differs from yours and mine. It's cutting-edge academic research, but recently it became intensely personal when Fallon had a conversation with his then 88-year-old mother, Jenny. It was four years ago, and we were at a family barbecue in the backyard. It was in the summertime, and she said, what are you doing now? Are you still doing those talks? And I says, Jim, why don't you find out about your father's relatives? I says, I think there were some cuckoos back there. <laughs> so Fallon investigated, and it turns out that one of his direct great-grandfathers, Thomas Cornell, killed his mother in the 1600s. And that line of Cornell's produced seven other alleged murderers. There's this whole lineage of very violent people, killers, ending with Lizzie Borden. Fallon was a little spooked by his ancestry, so he set out to see if anyone in his family had the brain of a serial killer. He knows what to look for, since he's studied the brains of dozens of psychopaths. He calls up an image of a brain on his computer screen. It's lit up with patches of color. Here is a brain that's not normal. You can see where this is, this yellow here and red here, and look, at it's almost nothing here. He's pointing to the orbital cortex. It's completely dark. That's the part of the brain that's right above the eyes, and this is the area that Fallon and other scientists believe is involved with ethical behavior, moral decision-making, and controlling one's impulses. People with low activity are either freewheeling types or sociopaths. Fallon says that's because the orbital cortex puts a break on another part of the brain called the amygdala, which is involved with aggression and appetites. If there's an imbalance, if the orbital cortex isn't doing its job, maybe because it was damaged or was just born that way. What's left? What takes over? Well, the area of the brain that drives your id-type behaviors, which is rage, violence, eating, sex, drinking. Now, nobody in his family has problems with those behaviors, but he persuaded 10 of his close relatives to submit to a brain scan. Then he examined the images, comparing them with the brains of psychopaths. His wife's scan was normal. His mother? Normal. Siblings? Normal. Kids? Normal. And I took a look at my own PET scan and saw something a little disturbing that I did not talk about. What he didn't want to reveal was that his orbital cortex looks inactive. If you look at the PET scan, I look just like one of those killers. 
Fallon cautions that this is a young field. Scientists are just beginning to understand this area of the brain. Still, he says, the evidence is accumulating that some people's brains predispose them toward violence and that psychopathic tendencies may be passed down from one generation to another. Which brings us to the next part of his family experiment. Along with brain scans, Fallon also tested each family member's DNA for genes that are associated with violence and impulsivity. He looked at 12 genes and zeroed in on something called the MAOA gene. It's also known as the warrior gene because it regulates serotonin in the brain. Serotonin affects your mood, and many scientists believe that if you have a certain version of the warrior gene, your brain won't respond to the calming effects of serotonin. So this is the MAO gene. And we could see here my daughter, a son, daughter, daughter, brother, brother, wife, brother. Everyone in his family has the low aggression variant, except... I'm like 100% here. I have the pattern, a risky pattern. In a sense, I'm a born killer. Fallon laughs as he says this. He doesn't believe his fate or anyone else's is entirely determined by genes. They merely tip you in one direction or another. And yet... When I put the two and two together, it was frankly a little disturbing. You know, you start to look at yourself and you say, I may be a sociopath. I don't think I am, but this looks exactly like psychopaths, sociopaths, that I've seen before. I wasn't too concerned. (laughs) I really wasn't. I mean, I'd known him since I was 12. That's Jim Fallon's wife, Diane. She probably doesn't need to worry, according to scientists who study this area. They believe that brain patterns and genetic makeup are not enough to make anyone a psychopath. You need a third ingredient, childhood abuse. And fortunately, he wasn't abused as a young person, so I've lived to be a ripe old age so far. Jim Fallon says he had a great childhood, and he says this journey through his brain has changed the way he thinks about nature and nurture. He used to believe that genes and brain function determine everything about us, but now he says he thinks his childhood may have made all the difference. We'll never know, but had I been abused, I think we wouldn't be sitting here today. As to the psychopaths he studies, he feels some compassion for these people who got, as he put it, a bad roll of the dice. It's an unlucky day when all of these three things come together in a bad way. And I think one has to empathize with what happened to them. But what about people who rape and murder? Should we feel empathy for them? Should they be allowed to argue in court that their brains made them do it? Tomorrow, we look at the brain of a psychopath and how scientific discoveries are changing our notions of morality, crime, and punishment. Barbara Bradley Haggerty, NPR News. Want to compare the brain images of Jim Fallon and his son? Go to NPR.org. They really are not NPR, so they won't be continuing that discussion. But I'm intrigued by Renee Montaigne's suggestion that I can go look at my professor of medicine's brain scan. I may want to do that before we bring him on this show, and we're very much looking forward to doing that next month. And in the five or six minutes we have left on today's program, I think we'll air a little bit we did several years back about... The blues, because I'm sure when James Fallon looked down and saw that he had the brain of a psychopath, he must have been having the blues there temporarily. At any rate, let's pull this one out of the archives. Now, people ask sometimes, well, what is the blues? Thankfully, Martha has sent us an email that should enable us to explain what constitutes the blues in no uncertain terms. All right, this uh, this email points out that most blues begin with... 
Woke up this morning. Now, I got a good woman is a bad way to begin the blues unless you stick something nasty in the next line like, I got a good woman with the meanest face in town. <laughs> now, the blues is simple. After you get that first line right, you repeat it. Then find something that rhymes with it, like this. Got a good woman with the meanest face in town. Yes, I got a good woman with the meanest face in town. She got teeth like Margaret Thatcher, and she weighed 200 pounds. Now, for those of you who are interested in the blues, we should point out that blues cars consist of Chevys, Fords, old Cadillacs, and broken-down trucks. Blues just don't travel in Volvos, BMWs, or SUVs. Walking plays a major part in the blues lifestyle, and so does Fixin' to Die. Now, teenagers, we're sorry to say, can't sing the blues. They ain't fixin' to die yet. It is adults who sing the blues. Now, adulthood is defined as being old enough to get the electric chair if you shoot a man in Memphis. Now, the blues can take place in New York City, but they can't take place in Hawaii or any place in Canada. Hard times in Minneapolis or Seattle is probably just clinical depression. Now, certain things may not qualify for the blues. A man with male pattern baldness ain't the blues. But a woman with male pattern baldness might be. Now, breaking your leg because you were skiing is not the blues. Breaking your leg because the alligator be chomping on it is. Now, some good places for the blues might be a highway, the jailhouse, an empty bed, or the bottom of a whiskey glass. Some bad places for the blues would be Nordstrom's, gallery openings, Ivy League colleges, or golf courses. Now, do you have the right to sing the blues? The answer would be yes, if you older than dirt, you blind, you shot a man in Memphis, or you can't be satisfied. It's felt that you cannot, however, sing the blues if you have all your teeth, you were once blind, but now you can see, the man in Memphis lived, or you have a 401k or trust fund. Now, some acceptable blues beverages would be cheap wine, whiskey or bourbon, muddy water, or nasty black coffee. But the following are not blues beverages. Perrier, Chardonnay, Snapple, or Slimfast. And it should be pointed out that people with names like Amber, Jennifer, Tiffany, and Heather can't sing the blues no matter how many men they shoot in Memphis. And lastly, we'd like to give you your own blues name starter kit. What you do is you take the name of a physical infirmity, blindness, being crippled, lame, etc. You need to combine this with the first name of a fruit with the last name of a president. Example, Blind Lemon Jefferson, or alternatively perhaps, Jack Leg Lime Fillmore. All right, Mr. Millen says we've got about two minutes left, so, well, doggone it, let's go to the archives one more time. We said on last week's program, uh, or maybe it was the week before, I forget, about how we would uh, have to replay the little commentary we did 
on NPR some years back on Texas. Well, what better time than now? Are you sick of Enron? And what about the SNL crisis? Half of those failed thrifts were from Texas. You know, I've had it with 10-gallon Stetsons, country line dancing, big belt buckles, LBJ, Dallas the TV show, Dallas of Jerry Jones's Cowboys, mechanical bull riding, looking box music, hook'em horns, and gillies. Texas snickered when Enron gouged California three times what it charged Vermont, and as taxpayers, we're still paying off SNL losses. Texas has been a toothache since day one. When Mexico told them good old boys they couldn't bring in slaves, they revolted. Next thing you know, their gang of cutthroats was holed up at the Alamo. Their take-no-prisoners attitude resulted in no prisoners being taken. Apparently, Enron-type thinking goes way back in Texas. I say revoke the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, call the Texas panhandle Baja, Oklahoma, and give the rest back. I mean, the place makes Fresno look pretty, and Houston's air is L.A. smog with Miami humidity. Good riddance. The same Texas that opposed Alaska statehood because they couldn't brag about everything being bigger in Texas shed crocodile tears on our energy plight last year. Let's dump these sandbaggers. Now, if we can only convince Mexico to take Texas back. We are flat out of time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. We'll hopefully we'll talk uh, with our class president just a little bit more about uh, this interesting bunch of folks I've been telling you about. We will otherwise resume our regular broadcasting. Yeah.